If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Highway to Health Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Quinby, provides guidance, quality resources, and inspiration for anyone seeking wellness in mind, body, and spirit. There's an episode that you should check out called The Value of Our Emotions, where Jeremy helps listeners understand the role emotions serve and what we can learn about our present state by staying attuned to them. Check out Highway to Health Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. And so there's very targeted recruitment from American Samoa, from Federated States of Micronesia and the Marshall Islands for food workers. You're talking about foster farms, you're talking about Tyson, but oftentimes when they come here, there's no support because these corporations are not set up as social service agencies. Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Today's episode is on Pacific Islanders. Washington is home to one of the largest Pacific Islander communities in the United States. These are the Polynesian, Micronesian, and Melanesian communities who have made Western Washington their home for more than 200 years. We talked about in a previous episode with Dr. Miley Tawali'i about how these terms are problematic. These terms, Polynesian, Micronesian, and Melanesian, are not used by the people that live in the islands and they're primarily terms that were created by colonizers. In addition, they're not specific enough. People don't come to you saying, I am Polynesian, but they say, I am Samoan. They don't say, I'm Melanesian. They say, I'm from Fiji. If you're like me, you're probably disoriented, talking about all the Pacific Islands. So I'll put the map in the show notes so you can become familiar with the islands and where they're located. More than half the state's Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander population have made Snohomish, King, Pierce, and Thurston counties their home. If I had to sum up the experience of the Pacific Islander community in Washington and the U.S., it's a story of erasure. First, it was erasure due to their inclusion in the Asian Pacific Islander category. The aggregation of Pacific Islanders into such a large group, such as Asians, made it so nobody actually knew how the Pacific Islander community in the U.S. was faring. They didn't know the statistics of health or their well-being or what resources they really needed. In 1997, the Office of Management and Budget mandated the disaggregation of the Asian and Pacific Islander data. This seems like a win, but this is where the other part of erasure comes in. After disaggregating the data, people realized the population of Pacific Islanders in the U.S. was less than 1%. And when you're less than 1%, sometimes people don't think it's worth it to spend resources on so few people. The Pacific Islander community were omitted from so many interventions that benefited many other people. And that's it. And that's what you hear when you talk to the community that just because they're 1% doesn't mean their lives don't matter, their culture doesn't matter, or they don't matter. To talk about this community, I have with me here Joseph Seiya, 
the co-executive director of the National Association of Pacifica Organizations and the founder of Pikawa. National Association of Pacifica Organization is the first national Pacifica organization convened by Pacifica leaders across the country to advance sovereignty and policy, health, and communications. Pikawa, the organization Joseph founded, the Pacific Islander Community Association of Washington, is an organization that provides a cultural hub and a center for service and advocacy for Pacifica peoples in Washington. Joseph has 15 years of experience in direct service, youth development work, and nonprofit leadership and administration. We structure our conversation by talking about Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia. We start off talking about Melanesia and how unhealthy food is dumped in the Pacific Islands, affecting their health. We talk about the idea that Pacific Islanders are primarily a Black race and how anti-Blackness has infiltrated the community. Then we head to Micronesia. We talk about the harms of Japanese and U.S. colonialism and COFA, the compact of free associations, the targeted recruitment of Pacific Islanders for food factories to avoid immigration barriers, and the poisoning of the environment through nuclear waste plants and how climate justice champions are fighting this violation. In the last part of the episode, we talk about Polynesia, how Polynesians are often seen as the navigators and explorers, and the concern of viewing the island's existence as entertainment for Asian and American tourists, how Christianity was Samoanized when it arrived, emphasizing the idea of holding multiple beliefs in contrast to the Western perspective that things can't coexist, and end the episode talking about Joseph's favorite food. Here's Joseph Seiya. Welcome to the show, Joseph Seiya. Hey, thanks, Raj. Thanks for having me. I know we were just talking about this, but I wanted to talk about just your story. How did you end up here in Coast Salish territory doing the work you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Th- uh, thanks for asking, Raj. So both of my parents were born in American Samoa, which is a U.S. territory since the 1870s. My family immigrated to Compton in the 1960s, and my parents met, and I was born in 1983 in Compton, California, along with my siblings. I think my parents had a hard time in California during that time, and we ended up back home in American Samoa and islands, and then moved to Western Samoa, Independent Samoa which is another country, and then ended back up here in Washington State when I was 11, where we had relatives over here. And with Pacific Islanders, you always migrate to where your relatives are. We had a cousin out here, so we ended up here and been stuck here for a while in Coast Salish uh, territory. So I went to middle school here and high school, went to college at Seattle University and have been here since then. Yeah. And your family's here still or back home? Yeah, my father ended up returning to Independence Samoa. My mother lives in Alaska with a few other siblings, younger siblings. Our smaller part of our clan is here, but most of our family is spread out throughout other diasporas in Australia, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and back home in Samoa. Yeah, gives you a way to travel the world, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. If you were seeing family <laughs> that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got family all over. Social media is actually really big for Pacific Islanders because we have very local family. A lot of Pacific Islanders are very global. And so a lot of the ways that we talk to each other is actually through Facebook and other social media. Do you all suffer from the WhatsApp too? 
Oh yeah, WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I get a lot of forwarded messages I'm trying to figure out what's real and what's not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. uh, well, thank you for joining us today to talk about the Pacific Islander community. We talked about the native Hawaii community a bit just in the prior episode. I wanted to actually spend some time just talking about the Pacific Islander community because I think people still say native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander. It's like that afterthought. And I wanted to break this down, go through the different islands, and also talk about a little bit of history. Not for everybody to remember it, but just to see the common themes in the history here, which is of colonialism and land displacement. So people use the terms Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia. I found a quote, which probably encompasses this definition, that it's not easy to define precisely on geographical, cultural, biological, or any other grounds, these terms, but they're a historical category and they've been used over and over And now people use that as common terms. Okay, let's go to Melanesia. And just to remind folks, it's Fiji, New Caledonia, Papua New Guinea, and then West Papua too. So there's a sizable population of the Fijian community in northern Washington, right? Around the Everett and Snohomish cities. Is that right? Yep. I wanted to talk about food for these different islands. Do you think Pacific Islander foods are overall similar? Is it still breadfruit, taro, things like that? Yeah, that's the indigenous sources of food, right? Our foods that you'll find on any tropical island, which is root-based, a lot of roots. A lot of Pacific folks grew up on roots, whether it's uh, sweet potato, yams, and taro. So I think the militaristic occupation of the Pacific, you find very similar foods across the Pacific that is based on canned food, right? Canned meats, all types of foods that might not be the best for you, but are consumed in the islands. And I also know that a lot of like meat products that isn't consumed in Western society is dumped on the Pacific. Things like the bad parts of the lamb, right? The New Zealand can't really sell in New Zealand, so they dump them on Pacific nations. And also turkey tail, which is a very fatty part of the turkey, is really widely consumed in the islands. So a lot of the bad, the meats that will be consumed in the Western islands are sent over to the Pacific for consumption. And because of Pacific nations, due to the laws of the World Trade Organization, we cannot put unnecessary tariffs or we cannot ban any products from Western nations, even products that might be unhealthy for us. So a lot of times we're forced to take whatever it is that is being dumped in our markets back. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it affects the economic life there too. If you flood the market with cheap, unwanted meat, it's going to change what's available and what people are able to afford to. That's right. Yeah. We saw the impacts of colonialism through the food, the dumping of food on the Pacific nations and jumps in rates of diabetes. A lot of the diseases were not in existence in the Pacific in the 1900s. And then you saw within two decades, for the first time, diabetes up to 50% in most of the island nations. And that was a direct impact of how Western foods has really destroyed the health of Pacific peoples. Yeah, yeah. Now that we're getting into it, I think it's a good time to highlight the facets of racism that happen when we talk about the community being obese, having diabetes, and it's because of their behavior or the choices they make. When there's all these underlying facts about the history and how societies have made food available or unavailable and have changed essentially what is supposed to be a healthy, nutritious diet into whatever's left over from our countries. That's right. Before we go to Micronesia, I would say that most Pacific Islanders that exist in the world are actually from our Melanesian territories. They're often the most under-celebrated, under-recognized Pacific peoples. Most Pacific Islanders have some degree of Melanesian genetics within them. So we are black and brown 
And I have to tell people that Senegalese are primarily a black race because of our kin to Melanesia. And there's still very explicit race that Asian people, Pacific peoples are still looked down as savages. All of the images from the U.S. slavery is still perpetuated to downgrade and dehumanize our Melanesian brothers and sisters and compare them to monkeys living in the jungles. And so there's very explicit racism that impacts our Black Pacifica, I should say. And we've done a lot of work to continue to lift up Melanesian kin. Because we know that we're all kin to Melanesia. I am descendant of Melanesian people as well. And all Pacific Islanders are descendants of Melanesian people, whether we like it or not. A lot of the anti-Blackness that we now experience in the Pacific Islander community is from the influences of the church, the image of white Christ, and also seeing that white skin is privileged and lifted up as something that is more beautiful and more ideal than your grandmother who is Black skin. So you often see white products being sold in markets in Melanesia and Micronesia and Polynesia because of anti-Blackness sentiments that was fed to us through religion and also through real rewards. Because under colonial rule, only half white persons were given the right to vote in many of these setups in the Pacific. So that also equated to being fully human. In the U.S., they also had different standards that measured Black vote, right? Vote privileges. Similar things were happening in the Pacific where you had to be half white in order for you to actually vote in a lot of those colonial structures. So whiteness is still lifted up in many ways. I think it's important to talk about internalized racial inferiority. Do you feel that the Melanesian community feels that? And is that part of the work we're talking about that we need to do as a community? Internalized racial inferiority affects all Pacific Islanders. Polynesian, Melanesian, Micronesian, Oceanian people, nobody has any real systemic power to impact pain on another racial group. So at the end of the day, we all lose in this arrangement. But colorism and the ways that we marked our relatives who are darker skin versus those that are whiter skin is all a part of the setup, right? There are no winners in this work and internalized racism affects all right? Even those that feel like they are superior because they are lighter skin in our communities. There is this term in the Samoan community called afakasi, and it really is a transliteration of half-caste. But it's used to praise people and say that they're more beautiful because they have European stock in their blood. And that was perpetuated because of colonialism to marry Europeans and marry white people because the lighter your skin, the more privileged you will be socially, economically, and political status. You're lifted up for all of those reasons. And yeah, that is something we continue to, to face in Pacific communities. And we're having to make sure that we together as a community are having dialogue and that we are not indeed continuing to perpetuate anti-Blackness within our own family. Yeah, it resonates with me because we struggle with that in the Indian community too. There's darker Indians and lighter Indians and skin whitening creams. It's like a billion dollar industry. So same work about figuring out how to come together as a community. You know, Raj, that's funny that you bring that up because I was in Fiji about three years ago and uh, the stuff that is aired in Fiji are actually Indian TV. And you go to Fiji and on TV are all these white-skinned people. I've never seen a white-skinned Indian, by the way. But that this is what's on 24-7 in Fiji. And you look at the melanin of the actual people that live there, all dark-skinned, indigenous Fijians and Indo-Fijians. But yet they're eating this BS stuff on TV that is all white-skinned people that they're seeing 24-7. And you see the product of that because you go to any market there is whitening products everywhere. And so it's a very common sort of product that is being sold in the islands. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Joseph, for explaining that 
part of Melanesia a little more. So the next thing that I have is Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia, Marshall Islands, and the U.S. territories of Guam, or part of Micronesia. I think it's a good time to talk about COFA. It comes up a lot, but I don't think people really understand that. Most people don't know, but most of the North Pacific, after the World War II, Japan had uh, committed genocide in many parts of Micronesia because of their proximity to Japan. And also because of the North Pacific's relevance as a pathway between Asia and also the U.S. So there was a lot of genocide happening in the North Pacific and also the the torture and rape of women, civic women being used as comfort women as well in that history, I think oftentimes is forgotten. And so there are a lot of mixed race North Pacific Islanders with Japanese blood because of the brutalities that Pacific Islanders faced when they were under Japanese rule. They left, the U.S. came in, one oppressor for the other, and the U.S. still did not see the humanity of the peoples there because of their relationship to indigenous people in the U.S. and instead used North Pacific as as practice for their atomic nuclear bombs. And so nuclear bombing was done in North Pacific for 20 years that led to a whole destruction of ocean and food source for a lot of our Micronesian brothers and sisters. And instead of going through a process of reparations, the U.S. decided to let them go under the compact of free association, right? So there is no sort of moral, economic, political reparations to be given to our Micronesian brothers and sisters. And instead, they signed these very weak agreements of a free association that allows our Micronesian nations to have to be freestanding, to be independent, but still are able to still travel here without any sort of social support. They just need their I-94 to get here. But once they get here, they don't qualify for any healthcare provisions, any benefits through DSHS. And so they're really left defenseless when a lot of our communities from Micronesia emigrate over. And I, when I say Micronesia, I'm talking about the larger Micronesia, but that also includes our Marshallese siblings, our uh, Lawan siblings, and also our Chamorro uh, siblings from uh, CNMI and also Guam. I will say that a lot of the migrations, at least to Western Washington, were very targeted recruitments from food corporations that would go to the islands, to these U.S. territories, and do campaigns and sign agreements with these local governments to then bring cheap labor. Because the difference between cheap labor from the U.S. Pacific and from Latin American countries is in the U.S. Pacific, they can come here and they don't have an immigration barrier that doesn't allow them to work. And so there's very targeted recruitment from American Samoa, from Federated States of Micronesia and the Marshall Islands for food workers. You're talking about foster farms. You're talking about Tyson. You're talking about in King County, there's a Tyler's Farm, which is a chicken a corporation that they recruit American Samoans from American Samoa. But oftentimes when they come here, there's no support because these corporations are not set up as social service agencies. So our peoples are left on their own. And the majority of who we work with are a lot of our folks that have been recruited for the food industry that are now living here and are needing the extra supports. Yeah. I think it's also important to highlight that this is part of U.S.'s history of broken promises and pacts, because I think they were supposed to get the benefits in the original compact of free association COFA, but in 1996, during the welfare reform, they removed all federal benefits, including Medicaid, for anybody in the COFA region. Think about the consequences of that, especially in the pandemic of accessing insurance and things like that. With COFA, part of the agreement was the ability to test nuclear weapons there. It was like, you get to come to America for free, but 
we also get to test nuclear weapons, especially in the Marshall Islands. There's actually an island, Bikini Atoll, where NATO people can't even go back there because it's so contaminated right now. Yeah, it's disgusting. People don't know about the history of how the islands were essentially messed over by the U.S. And they're still in the Marshall Islands. They do house nuclear waste plants that is now poisoning the ocean. And that is a huge concern for Pacific peoples. Because if you look at the work of climate justice champions, it's Pacific Islanders that have suffered under the environmental racism that we've experienced from Western and Asian nations, Eastern Asian nations. So we continue to be at the fore of fighting for the dignity of our oceans, our mountains, of clean water. And that is something that needs to be at the fore of all of our minds as Pacific peoples, that there is this nuclear waste plant in the Marshall Islands that continues to poison our ocean and something has to be done to fix it. It's the reason why Palau went off and signed their own agreement outside of the agreements with the Federated States of Micronesia because the nation of Palau are very powerful environmentalists because they have still retained their indigenous culture. And in their indigenous culture, the stewardship of earth and water and everything around them is still very high. And you see our Palauans be the champions of protecting their waters. As a matter of fact, they have a whole marine force where if they see any Asian boats that is coming to basically use really unhealthy fishing practices, they'll capture those boats, take the people on, burn the boat. And that is their message to a lot of our Asian nations. You cannot come in and rape and pillage our oceans. I think that's something that is okay. I really respect our Palauan people for the work that they continue to do on behalf of our ocean family. They also modeled for us what it means to really check capitalism because there was a time and place where there were too many trips to Palau and government people assessed that it was actually a negatively impacting the environment. And so they decided to do tourism differently where they basically were only flying in rich people and waiting less people to come in and do the tourism and stuff in Palau. And they seen their environment actually recover within 10 years. So there's a way to do capitalism that actually is preserving the natural resources around you. I feel like I gotta have an episode just about the Palauans here. Yeah, they're pretty cool. <laughs> Palau is pretty cool. Uh, for the Marshallese communities, there's a big community in Spokane, right? Yeah, we have a lot of food factories that are located in Spokane. And also we have some of the food farms too in, in Southwest Washington that has been recruiting our Chukis brothers and sisters. So you see a high population of our Chukis siblings in Vancouver and Cowlitz or Foster Farms is that. And then here in King County, Tyler Farms recruits directly from American Samoa. And so a lot of our newer U.S. Pacific relatives that are here are really here because of that direct recruit. And then once they're here, then they bring their relatives, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's go to Polynesia. The islands there are America, Samoa, Cook Islands, Tonga. You are Samoan, as you mentioned earlier. What should we know about Samoa? Yeah, so I'm Samoan, Tongan, and Maori. In Polynesia, we are perhaps like known as the ones that historically were the navigators, right? Because a lot of our islands very far out from the closest continents. And also when people arrived in the Samoan islands, they called us the island of the navigators because there were thousands of big ships that were going in and out. I should say that there were a lot of strategic ways that navigation was actually destroyed by the colonial forces. I know that for Samoa, 
a lot of our big ships that we called Aliyah were actually put down by some of the colonial governments that were there to restrict movement of Samoan people. Part of their ways of trying to uh, control and take over the islands by burning the ships of our peoples. And I think Polynesian people have had a very interesting relationship with our Western relatives and that they idealized us as their paradise, then marketed us as their paradise. And there's a large tourist industry that takes place in Polynesia to entertain white and Asian tourists or the fantasy of a lot of these big nations where they come in and take vacation. But I would say that Polynesian people have been here to the U.S. since time immemorial. We have been mixing with native people here for a while since the 8th century. We've been doing trading with indigenous people of the Americas. And so there's been a long history of connection between indigenous Oceanian people and indigenous North and South Americans. And the more recent sort of migration to Washington was actually around 200 years ago when they brought Polynesians from Hawaii and Samoa and other regions to essentially cut down the trees that facilitate the timber industry. Because part of the history that people don't know is when slavery ended in the Americas, I'd actually traveled to the Pacific and we called it the Blackbird Slavery. And that was from the 1860s till the 1910s, prior to the Europeans bringing the Asians over as indentured servants, right? Through the gentlemen's agreement. Prior to that, they had moved slavery into the Pacific. So we had a lot of plantations where islanders were essentially robbed from other islands to be worked in other islands and also robbed from our Pacific to be working in Australia and also in South America and, and places like Peru. And so there was this expertise that islanders had around clearing old growth forests, right? As part of that slavery period that they had gone through as they were seen as essentially experts in clearing down trees that were then used by Europeans as timber. And so a lot of our islanders that were brought here 200 years ago were here to do exactly the same thing, help with building the West Coast and West Coast cities by clearing the timber. And unfortunately, at that time, our folks were not able to live in white society and they couldn't live with other communities. So a lot of them were absorbed into the indigenous communities. And so you have a lot of mixed race native people that are also mixed with Polynesian near the state of Washington. But you've been here a while in Washington area. And now we have a huge population here in Washington. Yeah, large compared to especially the rest of U.S. I think probably in the top five, I would assume. I want to talk about the fact that missionaries were a huge part of American Samoa. Is Christianity a big influence in the islands for the Samoan people? Yeah, yeah. In the 1700s, the French got there. There was the Massacre Bay, but essentially the French, under the leadership, I believe, I forget his name, Artista, he had done something that was really offensive to the Samoan people. Hung a, a young Samoan woman when he was over there to make an example to Samoan people not to mess with them. And they didn't know that one of the kings was there and the king had ordered basically for them to be killed. There were 11 folks that survived that went back to France. But in going back to France, they renamed our islands the Savage Islands from the islands of the many navigators. And because of that renaming, they essentially discouraged Indians from visiting our islands. We're called the Islands of the Savages. Because of that renaming, they didn't come back till later. So actually, Salmon people were the last people to be missionized because they had come there until the 1830s. And by then, all the Native Hawaiians, Tongans, Tahitians, Nukuhivans, a lot of them had already been Christianized, and Samoa was the last place that Christianity arrived. And in natural consequence of that, we have retained a lot of our indigenous culture, our chiefly systems, a lot of our cultural protocol is still alive. 
Atatau, which is the art of uh, Atatau, uh, the marking of our body is still alive, and many other things that were essentially banned in other Pacific nations. And I would say that Samoans really uh, Samoanized Christianity when it got there. <laughs> And Samoans didn't have to go through a long period of cultural assimilation. It's actually a, a little shorter of a period. And so when you hear our chiefs and our, our pastors speak, they would often talk about Jesus right after they talk about God is not Fanua, right after they talk about God, Tamaloa, in the same light, informing our moral and cultural practice as Samoans. And so Samoans haven't necessarily teared those things apart, which is very much after this indigenous belief that we can hold all things, right? that things don't have to oppose, like in Western society, where one philosophy murders the other philosophy, so one thing can only stand. But for indigenous people, it can actually hold the nuance and hold many things together as truths, right? One doesn't have to necessarily dominate the other. Yeah. Okay. Since you are from Samoa, is there any specific food that you really crave from your homeland? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, it's a good question. Yeah, taro is a big thing, right? We have this delicacy called palolo, which is the reproductive organs of a coral that is found that grows in the Samoan Islands. And I think it's on the last moon in October. It all comes up, right? And it looks greenish and clear. And there's old traditions, Samoan traditions around celebrating this harvest once a year. And it's the most expensive item. Like people were selling it like in the hundreds, thousands of dollars just for a little whatever pound of it. So we call it palolo. And I, I would say every someone that grew up in the Samoan Islands would pay like gold to get some pololo <laughs> in there. Yeah. It doesn't look the most appetizing because they look like worms. Oh. Yeah. But, but we love it. Thanks for joining me, Raj Sundar, in this episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember to check out part two of this conversation in the next episode. Show notes and links can be found over at healthcareforhumans.org. Feel free to comment or send me a message there. If you prefer email, email me at healthcareforhumans at yahoo.com for feedback and guest ideas. And lastly, make sure you hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. See you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duwamish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duwamish. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Highway to Health Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Quinby, provides guidance, quality resources, and inspiration for anyone seeking wellness in mind, body, and spirit. There's an episode that you should check out called The Value of Our Emotions, where Jeremy helps listeners understand the role emotions serve and what we can learn about our present state by staying attuned to them. Check out Highway to Health podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.